Hi, and welcome to Wealthion. I'm James Conner. And today my guest is Jim Rickards. And Jim has had a fascinating career as a lawyer and as a banker. He's also a very prolific writer on finance and politics. So he's always got great insights on anything to do with politics and also the economy. Hi, Jim. Thank you very much for joining us today. How are things in Portsmouth? Uh, thanks, James. Great to be with you. Uh, in Portsmouth, uh, you know, it's cold this time of year, but it's a great, uh, uh, it's a great city, great history. Uh, it's actually the oldest city in the United States, not counting the old Spanish Empire. So the couple of places, you know, Santa Fe and St. Augustine and Taos might be a little bit older, but uh, 1623, uh, home of uh, John Paul Jones uh, and the oldest naval shipyard in, in, the, in the United States, founded in 1800. So uh, a lot of history and a bit of a, a restaurant uh, uh, mecca also. We have over 100 restaurants, all you know, kind of independent and all very good, not talking about chains and so forth. So yeah, it's a fun, uh, it's a fun city. I enjoy living here very much. Yeah, I have not uh, had the pleasure of going to Portsmouth, but I have been to Bretton Woods and that's another place that's had a lot of history. I'm sure you're quite familiar with that place. Yeah, I've been to Bretton Woods a number of times. It's at the, uh, New Hampshire's like a long, skinny state. So we're at Portsmouth is at the southern end. Uh, about an hour from uh, Boston, and uh, Bretton was at the northern end of the state, not too far from the uh, Canadian border. But I've been up there a number of times. It's a great venue for um, events. I did uh, actually did a war game, uh, facilitated and conducted a, a war game up there for uh, for Boeing uh, some years ago. Uh, they, uh, um, I wasn't sure why Boeing wanted a war game, but then I realized they're the, I think first or second largest exporter. Uh, in the United States. And uh, so they deal with foreign currencies and foreign trade all the time. So they um, they were interested in that. But I've been there a few other times. I was there for the uh, 75th anniversary of Bretton Woods, uh, which was in uh, 2019. So we had a big uh, group. Uh, Larry Summers was there, former Secretary of the Treasury, and a number of other uh, bright lights. Uh, Stephanie Kelton, she's the big brain of modern monetary theory. So we had a good group. And that was a uh, that was a fun visit also. Yeah, it's a beautiful part of the world. I would love to get back there. So let's uh, carry on. And I want to get your thoughts on what's happening in the world right now. There's so much going on with Ukraine and Russia and the Middle East and also interest rates and inflation. And when you look at all of these various events, uh, is there anything that really causes you a lot of angst right now? Or is there anything that keeps you up at night? Uh, well, I try to get a good night's sleep and I try to be angst-free. But if you're asking whether any of those issues are cause for uh concern? The answer is yes. You mentioned five or six things. Um, I could probably do one or two hours uh, on each of them. So we don't have 12 hours, but we'll try to try to get this in. But yeah, they're all they're all cause for concern. Um, and interestingly, they're all connected in certain ways. So you can find connections if you take Ukraine, um, maybe the the most direct. I mean, uh, I always tell people, you know, pretty much everything you read in the New York Times uh, the Washington Post, uh, LA Times, uh, Reuters and others are uh, just wrong or outright lies. Um, it's very difficult to get good sourcing on Ukraine. It took me a while. It took me about six months, but I've developed that now and I've got kind of reliable sources from a number of channels. But the bottom line is that Russia is winning decisively. People don't understand the Russian way of war. Uh, they're never in a hurry. They're very slow, methodical, thorough. They they put up a you know great entrenched defense and then they fight a war of attrition. They basically annihilate 
the enemy without ever attacking because the enemy attacks them. Uh, they invented um, what they call crumple zones. They'll make a, a sort of advance, uh, but not in great strength. And then the enemy counterattacks and they retreat. And then the enemy moves forward. But what they don't realize is they're going into a kill zone and they, then they get a massive uh, artillery drone and, uh, and, and bomber um, uh, you know, bombardment and, and get annihilated with very high casualties. I think there are 500,000 dead Ukrainians since the war started. It's a war that never should have happened. It was really a failure of uh, U.S. diplomacy, among other things, but uh, a war that never should have happened. Uh, but now that it's far along, you know, be two years old next month. Um, the, you know, just to be clear, Russia, Russia's winning, Ukraine's losing badly, they're running out of men. Um, USAID has dried up, that's tangled up in the Congress. Uh, they can't get Ukraine aid passed uh, through the House and Senate. Uh, the Europeans have stopped giving more money. Um, Hungary has a veto. They might get a little bit in dribbles over a five-year period, but not anywhere near what they need. You know, you see Zelensky running around Davos with a tin cup, trying to get money and comes back empty-handed. Um, the economy is a shambles. A lot of the money we give them just goes to pay, you know, government salaries to the oligarchs and the neo-Nazis. So, um, you know, there's this idea we're fighting for democracy in Ukraine, which is nonsense. The U.S. is having elections this year. Russia is having elections. Ukraine canceled their elections and arrested their political enemies. So, you know, show me, show me where the democracy is. Uh, that, that obviously doesn't exist. So, um, but on the financial side, which I think our viewers are might maybe most interested in, the financial sanctions have been a complete failure. Uh, about about to get worse, by the way. I'll spend a minute on that. But I teach uh, financial warfare at a seminar on financial warfare at the U.S. Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And I, when I did it two years ago in uh, April 2022, right after the war started, I went through the sanctions. It's a small class, about 12, 13, all handpicked mid-career officers, lieutenant colonels, Navy commanders, um, some civilians, CIA. Um, State Department and, and a few others, but it's, it's an elite group. They're, they're, they've been kind of handpicked as the future big brains. You know, I always ask how the old classes are doing, you know, future three-star generals or deputy national security advisors, et cetera. Uh, and the class was very gung-ho. It was right after the war began. I said, just so you know, the sanctions are, are going to fail uh, and they'll actually be worse than a failure. They'll boomerang and hurt the United States more than they hurt Russia. Russia will not, it will not change Russia's behavior. And that sense will fail in terms of the immediate objective, but the actual, actually the Russian economy will uh, be fine. Um, so then I taught the class again, this, uh, well, 2023, uh, May, 2023. And I said, uh, by the way, in the 2022 class, I got a lot of pushback. I guess everyone was gone. And that's okay. It's seminar style. And you're supposed to have, you know, different perspectives. So that's, that's a good way to do it. In the 2023 class, I said, here's what I told last year's class, and I was right about everything. The sanctions had failed. They had hurt the United States. The Russian economy was fine. All the oil or natural gas that Western Europe didn't want, they sold it to India and China. Um, the uh, Russian ruble was was steady. It's gone down a little bit, but not much. But uh, the, the idea that, you know, Biden, we're going to destroy the ruble, we're going to crush Russia, not true. I mean, he actually doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, the Russian economy is outperforming the U.S. economy right now. The only economic problem Russia has is they have a labor shortage because their their economy is running so hot that it's actually kind of hard to find people to fill all the jobs. But that's that's a, a good problem to have. 
a little bit of inflation, not much, actually lower than the U.S. And uh, Elvira Nabulina, who's the head of the Central Bank of Russia, I always say she's the only central banker in the world who actually understands her job. Uh, she raised interest rates a little bit just to cool down the inflation. They're put. They're on a, a, a complete war footing uh, and making uh, several million. 155 millimeter artillery shells per year. Now, over to the United States, UK, Western Europe, uh, our arsenals are, are, are depleted. We've given um, Ukraine, uh, you know, in some cases, uh, almost everything we have. The UK is out of storm shadow missiles. The, uh, uh, the US is out of 155 millimeter shells. Germany, uh, France, same thing, no 155 millimeter shells left. That's why we started giving. Ukraine cluster bombs, it's a form of artillery uh, called a cluster bomb because we didn't have any more of the regular shells. We've given them, I believe, four, maybe more, but at least four Patriot anti-missile batteries. Uh, the Russians have blown up three of them, destroyed three of them with their hypersonic missiles. The Patriots, they can shoot down a cruise missile, certainly a drone or other types of missiles, but they can't stop a hypersonic missile and the Russians have them, the Ishkal missile, so the Russians just fire the Ishkel missile and the, they blow up the Patriot systems. They're about a billion dollars a piece. So there's three billion gone. So the Ukraine's running out of um, uh, cruise missiles, uh, storm shadows in particular. Their, uh, their Patriots uh, systems are either blown up or don't work. There was the famous Leopard tank uh, that Germany supplied Leopard tanks to Ukraine. Um, they went on the battlefield, got blown up. There were just all these images of burning leopard tanks everywhere. The U.S. actually called Ukraine and said, because we had sent them some Abrams tanks, and said, please please don't use our tanks because we don't want pictures of the Abrams burning on the battlefield. You know, it's bad for sales. So um, the Russian economy is fine. The Ukrainian economy scarcely exists. Russia is winning the war, but they're taking their time. They're, they're not in a hurry. They, they remember the famous Ukrainian, you know, spring, fall, spring, summer, fall, a counteroffensive. It, it it made a few miles. It got like two villages, and then they were pushed back. It's a complete complete failure. They lost half their, um, you know, their Bradley fighting vehicles, uh, their Leopard Challenger tanks. Um, their air defenses are gone. There's nothing stopping the Russians from doing whatever they want. So that's a complete disaster. Now, so you say, well, how can you make that worse? You know, U.S. policy has been completely misguided. Well, how can you make it worse? but leave it to the White House to come up with a way. Um, when the war started, we and NATO allies froze Russian assets, any any assets we could get our hands on. So if their central bank reserves, Russian central bank reserves were in Western banks, many of them were, those were frozen. And uh, it's about $300 billion, mostly in U.S. Treasury securities. The, the, the entire reserve position was... Uh, a little under 600 billion. Uh, Russia very intelligently put 25% of the reserves in gold. So they had about 150 metric tons of gold. Uh, sorry, um, no, they have 3,000 metric tons of gold, but it was about $150 billion of the $600 billion. So they got about 25% of the reserves in gold. We can't touch that. It's one of the attractions that goes physical, it's not digital. So you just put it in the vault and keep an eye on it, but you can't freeze it in the banking system. But anyway, we have these $300 billion of U.S. Treasury securities, mostly in Europe. The uh, amount in the United States is um, uh, about $30 billion, uh, but most of it's in Europe. It's in 
it's in Deutsche Bank and Barclays and HSBC, Unicredit, UBS, and, and a few other banks. Now, what the United States wants to do, and we're actually passing legislation to authorize this, probably already authorized, but uh, just to make it clear, is to seize the assets. And we've already frozen them. We've frozen them, meaning Russia can't sell them, can't collect the interest, can't transfer them, but they still belong to Russia. That's what freezing is. Now what the government wants to do is seize them, confiscate them, basically, take them from Russia, steal them, in effect, uh, and then use that money to rebuild Ukraine. Uh, now, there are a number of problems with that. Number one, you're not going to be able to rebuild Ukraine because Russia will take over the whole country at the rate they're going. So there'll be nothing. Russia might, might want to rebuild it. The Ukrainians might, but the, the West is not going to rebuild Ukraine because the West is not going to be involved. That's how badly they're losing. But that aside, um, when you do that, that's a default on U.S. Treasury securities. I'm, I don't care what you call it. You can, you can dress it up in legal language. I'm a lawyer, so I actually understand all this. But uh, the rest of the world is going to look at that. And Saudi Arabia, Taiwan, China, South Korea, uh, and other countries that have hundreds of billions, or in some cases, upwards of close to a trillion dollars, in the case of China, of U.S. Treasury securities, they're going to say, hey, you just stole $300 billion or, or, or 50% of Russia's, the Central Bank of Russia's reserve position. These aren't this isn't like oligarch oligarch money or uh, you know something else where you might be able to rationalize it. What if they don't like what we do? What if they don't like one of our policies? So all these countries are going to be highly motivated to get out of U.S. dollars. You can't do it all at once. This will take time. Um, and this then, I said this is all connected. This then ties into the rise of the BRICS currency. Uh, the BRICS, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, uh, they've been around, they've been meeting since 2006. Um, at their last meeting in August, they added um, five new members. Um, so uh, I, they added yeah, five new members. So now it's sort of the BRICS 10. Uh, but the members they added include uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, so now if you look inside the BRICS, you've got Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Russia. Um, I believe uh, UAE was also added, United Arab Emirates and Abu Dhabi in particular. So uh, now you don't need OPEC anymore. You have OPEC inside the BRICS. In fact, Russia has never been a member of OPEC. But now you have Iran, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Russia all inside the BRICS. So they have as much power, probably more, than, than OPEC. Uh, and they're working on a new currency. And it's all designed to create, uh, basically recreate the Bretton Woods institutions. We talked about that, but they have the uh, uh, new development bank in Shanghai, which is a clone of uh, the World Bank. They have the um, con uh, conditional asset reserve. Uh, it's basically a clone of the IMF, swing lender for countries that are experiencing capital outflows. Um, and uh, they have a lot of other institutions as well, but now they're gonna have their own currency. They're working on their own payments channels. So, and I've told people, the Treasury and, and the Fed, uh, the Pentagon, I've had all those meetings at different times. I said, you are, and I said this years ago, I said, you're overusing sanctions. Sanctions can work against a medium-sized country that doesn't have many alternatives, but against a major power like Russia, they don't work at all. Uh, but by overusing them, you're going to drive people, uh, countries away from the dollar. 
and undermine the role of the dollar first as a major global payments currency and then ultimately as a reserve currency i pretty i always got the meetings but i pretty much got you know i laughed out of the room was one treasury official uh david dollar interesting last name but uh, david dollar was in charge of the dollar um uh in terms of treasury liaison with asia and he like one meeting i said pretty much what i just said he slammed his hands on the table this was at the pentagon both palms down bam and said the dollar has been the global reserve currency it is the global reserve currency today and it will always be the global reserve currency and i said david i feel like i'm in whitehall in 1913 listening to john bull talk about how sterling is the global reserve currency and always will be i said that's not true i said it could be true if you if you manage it properly but you're overusing sanctions you're going to and you, how many times you can hit the punching bag before the punching bag gets up and walks out of the room and that's kind of where we are so so uh we're we've pretty much lost the war in ukraine we've lost the financial war that goes with it russia's doing extremely well um and russia is a key part of the BRICS, and the BRICS are working together to create this new currency that will be linked to gold it won't be a strict gold standard but it will be uh, the value of one brick unit i, I don't know what they're going to call it i call it a brick for now but maybe they'll call it the bank or who knows but it will be uh its value will, will be determined be determined by weight of gold weight of gold not a dollar equivalent you can obviously with a transitive law convert that to dollars but um uh it they'll let the dollar do the dirty work in the gold market and they'll just peg to a quantity of gold you don't even need that much gold to do it you just say that's what it's worth uh we issue it and we accept it um and so uh all that's happening around us. The White House is pretty much uh, clueless. They don't understand this. You know, I like Mike Johnson. He's the new Speaker of the House, but he seems to be on board this Russia confiscation. Uh, you know, I, I've spoken to some people. They're going to try to take him aside and explain what a what a blunder that would be. But uh, at least so far, they're going ahead. Very interesting comments, Jim. And and before we move on to discuss the Middle East, I, I just want to stay on Ukraine for a bit. First of all. Why did Russia attack Ukraine? What was it that they wanted? What was their objective? Well, they've stated their objectives. It's not a mystery. They want um, a demilitarization, denazification, because it's run by a lot of uh, Nazi sympathizers, um, not join NATO, obviously. Uh, and um, uh, well, those were the those were the three main three main objectives: demilitarization, denazification. No membership. Oh, and the neutrality. We have many examples of that. I mean, Finland was neutral throughout the entire Cold War until very recently, just on NATO. It's probably a mistake, but but until then, they had been neutral. Austria was neutral during most of the Cold War. That's why Vienna was such a hub for for spies and like the Third Man with Orson Welles. But uh, you know, Austria was technically neutral. They ultimately westernized. But so there is a. Um, Switzerland maintains neutrality. So there is there's plenty of precedent for that. And they wanted Ukraine to be neutral. Now, why did they attack when they did the, the, the SMO or special military operation? The United States provoked the war. The United States spent 14 years poking a stick in Russia's eye and Russia eventually reacted. But you go back to uh, George uh, W. Bush, 2008, the Bucharest Declaration. He said, um, Ukraine and Georgia should uh, join NATO, that we should start the process of letting Ukraine and Georgia join NATO. Four months later, Putin invaded Georgia. Um, you know, are you not, are you not paying attention? You said that you want them in NATO. 
Putin says, no, we're going to, we, and they did invade Georgia and they took half the country and neutralized it. And, and Georgia obviously does not belong to NATO. So then flash forward to 2014, uh, CIA and MI6 provoked one of these color revolutions. I forget what color it was, might've been purple, but uh, it was the Maidan, Maidan Square demonstration. Now bear in mind, at the time, Ukraine had a duly elected president. They had an election and it was fair by all accounts. Um, and he was pro-Russian, fair to say, but you know, he was talking to the EU trying to do a trade deal with the EU, also doing a trade deal with Russia, um, tilting to Russia, but, you know, trying to play it down the middle. Ukraine politics is a, it's a tough game. Uh, but the CIA and the and MI6 uh, and the local neo-Nazis staged a coup and they drove him out and they killed a lot of innocent civilians in Maidan Square. And then um, the, the was President Poroshenko, you know, got on a plane and flew to Moscow, you know, kind of had to run for his life. And then we installed a puppet. So um, a couple months after that, Putin took over Crimea. So like, what, what part of invasion do you not understand? I mean, and that was every time the United States and really the Europeans are vassals at, at this point. Um, every time the U.S. and its vassals uh, provoke Russia, either by saying Georgia and Ukraine should join NATO or staging a coup and sending the president, you know, kind of running for his life. Putin would react by invading. He invaded Georgia and he invaded Ukraine. Oh, sorry, Crimea, which is which is now part of Russia, historically part of Russia, but it was uh, considered part of Ukraine. And we kept going. We kept going. I mean, they impeached Donald Trump for a phone call. A phone call with Zelensky, and he gets impeached. Now you got you know Lindsey Graham and uh, Nikki Haley and uh, Joe Biden and all the other warmongers going to Kiev, they don't get impeached, but you know, somehow uh, uh, Trump makes one phone call and that was enough to impeach him. So that was just the, again, the warmonger element, the State Department, you know, and now, you know, Tony Blinken, um, the National Security Advisor, uh, sorry, Tony Blinken, Secretary of State, uh, Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor, Victoria Newland, Deputy Secretary of State, they're, they're the, the, the inner core of the warmongers, but there are plenty of them in Washington, no no shortage. They just want war. They 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 don't understand Russia. They don't understand history. Um, they had this notion that, uh, well, if we can just keep pushing, 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 provoke a war, we can deplete Russia's military capability, inflict major casualties on Russia, create dissension in Moscow. The Russians just, you know, they don't train. They just sit there and drink vodka. The generals are incompetent. The whole thing will fall apart. There'll be an uprising of Western elites in Moscow and they'll overthrow Putin and we can get back to looting the place. Um, none of that happened. None of that happened. They completely misunderstood basically everything about Russia. Putin's power base is not the oligarchs. He actually doesn't like the oligarchs. He has to put up with them. Uh, and he's told them, you know, you can keep your money, but keep out of politics. And he put a few of them in jail just as to, to prove his point. Um, but he's never relied on the oligarchs. Putin's base is the military, the intelligence community, the Orthodox Church, and everyday Russians. And that has not been impacted at all. Uh, their economy's doing fine. Guess whose arsenals are depleted? Not Russia, ours. We're the ones running out of patriots. We're the ones out of running out of uh, 155 millimeter shells. 
uh, we're the ones who can't make the cruise missiles fast enough. We're the ones who don't have enough drones, et cetera. Russia has all of that and more because they put their economy on a war footing. Putin's more popular than ever. He's going to win re-election as president next month. And so they got everything wrong, which means that they are ideologically driven, not uh, they're not good students of history. They don't understand the Russian way of war. Just study the Battle of Kursk. Study what happened on the Eastern Front uh, in World War II. Uh, the, the, the Wehrmacht went in and they killed 5 million Russians. And they were on the outskirts of Moscow. They invaded Stalingrad. They had Leningrad today, St. Petersburg, you know, surround it. And they were starving them out. Um, and it looked like very close to a complete victory. But what they didn't understand is that, yeah, they killed 5 million Russians, but then the, the Russians said 5 million more and 5 million more, meaning Russia had reserves and uh, what's called strategic depth and population. And all of a sudden the Wehrmacht, they, they suffered, you know, 5 million casualties, but they were done. They, they didn't, they didn't have Germany is a much smaller country. They didn't have 5 million more. And then Russia went all the way to Berlin. But that didn't happen overnight. That took uh, two and a half years. And in that, in those two and a half years, the Russian strategy was um, kind of an envelopment. They would, they would stop your advance, but they would kind of fight a war of attrition, but they would surround you in the meantime. And only when they had pretty much annihilated you and surrounded you, would they go in and, and basically kill everybody. And then, you know, maybe a few escaped to the West, but they did that over and over. And it took, I guess it took two and a half years. So anyone who studied that would have said, ah, the Russians have, you know, practically inexhaustible reserves, uh, enormous industrial capacity, the discipline to go on a war footing, uh, and they're very slow, but very methodical, and they always win. That's what you would have concluded. They, the, the Victoria Newlands and Tony Blinkens of the world were are, are intellectual lightweights. I mean, she, and she went to Brown, but that's like a bachelor's degree, but she has no advanced training. Uh, Jake Sullivan's a campaign hack who ended up as national security advisor. He's just trying to keep the war going until the election's over. They don't have any strategic vision. So, you know, I, I do look at the U.S. foreign policy establishment and I ask myself, you know, and, and, and other countries ask themselves the same thing. I mean, where, where are the Henry Kissingers, the James Bakers, the Dean Rusks, the John Foster Dulleses, uh, the Dean Ashesons, uh, George Schultz. I mean, where, uh, Averill Harriman, uh, McGeorge Bundy, where's that kind of talent and, uh, and, um, learning and brilliance, you know, they made mistakes. Uh, but, but the point is there was never any shortage of talent there. And today we have all these hacks. Um, but, but it shows up in the results. I mean, since Biden went in, we had a uh, humiliating retreat from Afghanistan. A lot of Americans killed for no reason. Um, we've, we have a war in Ukraine that we're losing badly. We've depleted our arsenals. Now we have a war in Gaza, which is, um, you know, that that's going to take a while, but the Houthis are, have closed the Red Sea and the, and the, and the Suez Canal. And now the Iranian proxies are killing Americans. So thank you, Joe. Nice job. Jim, before we move to the Middle East, one more question on, on Ukraine. And it sounds like, the resolution, the only resolution is a complete takeover of Ukraine by Russia. And so my question to you is what, who's next? No one, this is all, this is all Russia wanted. I mean, they, they, uh, it sort of depends on how NATO reacts. Now the U S has said they're going to give 
uh, Ukraine F-16s. They haven't arrived yet, but they're that's supposed to happen later this year. They got to train the pilots. They have problems because the pilots don't speak English. A lot of them, but uh, but that is they still have to teach them English before they can teach them how to fly an F-16. Um, there are all kinds of logistical difficulties with that. First of all, you need a six thousand foot runway to fly an F-16. They don't have any in Ukraine. They've all been bombed. And if they tried building one, the Russians would bomb it. And so it's not even clear how you can station uh, F-16s in Ukraine because they don't have the infrastructure to support them or maintain them or a long enough runway. So what do you do? Well, you could station them in Poland and fly them into Ukraine, but now Poland's at war with Ukraine. Now, in that scenario, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but in that scenario, Russia would probably bomb Poland. So when you say who's next, my answer is, well, it depends on what the other guy does. Russia's not going to invade Poland for the fun of it. They're, this is not, they're not on uh, some spree to take over uh, even Eastern Europe, uh, let alone Central Europe. Um, but if if Poland is dumb enough to allow their country to be used as a base for attacking Russians in Ukraine, they should expect retaliation. Um, and so... It's really, and and the, the real concern, I mean, what I look at, I spend a lot of time thinking about is the escalatory dynamic. You know, one raises the ante, the other one goes higher, then higher and higher. And the next thing, that's how you get to nuclear war. I mean, I've been studying nuclear war fighting since the 1960s. Um, and there are a lot of great analysts, um, you know, Herman Kahn and uh, Paul Nitze and Albert, and Roberta Wolfstetter, uh, Henry Kissinger, um, and uh, and others. Um, and they had different approaches and different emphases, but they all said the same thing in the end, which is don't go there. Meaning nobody wakes up and says, oh, nice day for nuclear war. I think I'll fire a missile. That's not how it happens. It happens through escalation and the escalation dynamic continues to a point where one side feels that they're in a corner and it's existential and they have no choice. And what's interesting in that situation is this is where the game theoretic uh, uh, analysis comes in. If the other guy's backed into a corner and ready to launch nuclear weapons, it's a good idea for you to shoot first. And the, the you know the the first uh, first strike always has um, always has the advantage in those situations, even though you've got to face potentially face a second strike. But particularly if your first strike can be extremely damaging to the second strike capability of the target. So. Um, so you actually are on a path to nuclear war. The question is, is there enough wisdom or understanding to back off that path and de-escalate, which is what we did in the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 when the Able Archer uh, was was uh, dangerous in 1983. And before that, uh, there was another uh, computer glitch on the Russian side where they, they had five incoming U.S. ICBMs and the system gave a launch signal, meaning attack the United States. And one guy took it upon himself to ignore the order, but uh, probably the risk of his own life and, and the future of the Soviet Union at the time. So um, so you don't want to go there is, is the point. Uh, but I've seen so much stupidity on the NATO side, I don't have any assurance that they won't. Uh, so if you ask me, does Russia have... Does Russia have goals beyond Ukraine in terms of uh, military um, uh, attacks? The answer is no. But could they, as they were provoked 
into attacking Ukraine after 14 years of U.S. provocation, could they uh, be provoked into further action as a response to something really stupid by Poland or Romania? Uh, yeah, you can't rule that out because the uh, stupidity is pretty widespread. Well, that's a great overview of what's happening in Russia and also with the with Ukraine. Why don't we move on now and, and discuss the Middle East? What's your current view on how things are unfolding there? And has your view changed since October? Well, um, I mean, interestingly, the dynamic in the Middle East is exactly the same dynamic in Ukraine that we just discussed, different parties, different goals, but uh, it's on an escalatory path. So uh, Hamas goes into Israel on October 7th, 2023, kills more Jews in one day than any time since the Holocaust. Uh, and worse than killing them, there were uh, rapes and murders, uh, you know, torture, uh, uh, and a lot else on it too, um, I mean, you know, too graphic to uh, describe or certainly nothing you want to dwell on, but horrific is, is a good word. Uh, Israel responded militarily as one would expect. Um, they've systematically um, you know, cleaned out uh, Gaza City. They're now in, in the southern part of, uh, of Gaza. It's not that big. It's, oh, I think it's about 28 miles by seven or eight miles. You know, it's call it, you know, 210 square miles, but that that's it for the whole place. Um, and so, yeah, uh, Hamas struck first, horrific attack, Israel struck back. So there's your first, you know, escalation. Um, the, they think, they estimate, none of these numbers are exact, but they estimate there are about 45,000 Hamas fighters. Uh, you don't have to kill everyone. Generally, if you kill a third of the opposing force with a heavy concentration on officers and leadership, that's enough to cause the force to disintegrate. The rest of them will just kind of, you know, go home and you know, maybe hide their rifles under the bed or whatever. Um, so they're going to have to kill about 15,000 Hamas fighters. I don't know the exact number. They've killed seven or 8,000. So they still have a way to go. So this is going to last for a little while. There might be a, a ceasefire and exchange of prisoners. That would be good, but I doubt that's the end. Uh, the end of the war. Um, but so then, but then what else is happening? That's the point getting back to escalation. Well, now we see Hezbollah firing missiles into Northern Israel. They're, they're up in Lebanon, mainly um, on the, on the Northern border of Israel. Uh, we see um, Houthi rebels uh, firing uh, shipping in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Arabia, Arabian Gulf. Um, and uh, both Hezbollah and the Houthis are Iranian proxies, so you can be very sure that Iran's behind it, but Iran's supplying them financially, militarily, with the drones, with the missiles, et cetera. Um, Israel has begun to respond to that, uh, but now Americans have been killed, uh, and uh, American shipping has been hit, and uh, the Red Sea is closed, and by extension, the Suez Canal is closed, and now your oil from the Middle East to Europe, has to, or natural gas for that matter, has to go around Cape of Good Hope. Uh, I've been there, it's a pretty place, but it's, it's a pretty far from uh, the Red Sea. Um, so what does that do just financially? Well, it adds a lot to your transportation costs, which means you that will put upward pressure on the price of oil. I mean, we are in a, uh, the dollar and the US in particular are in a serious uh, disinflationary mode. Uh, Maybe dangerously close to deflation, which is 
worse or at least harder to get out of and it cause, and has creates a lot of difficulties for uh, for debtors um and and then the debtors default and the loss goes to the banks and the banks start to fail so uh you have uh, the makings of a recession and possibly a bank panic well now this uh but the one thing that is going up uh, other than gold is the price of oil well that's because of the geopolitical tensions we're describing but those transportation costs are going to go up a lot insurance costs are going to go up uh that's going to go cut against what the fed's trying to do which is to get disinflation is going to cut against whatever otherwise disinflationary trends that means the fed will not cut interest rates as wall street's been wrong about the pivot for two years it's sort of become a running joke i mean they started the pivot dialogue in the uh summer of 2022 so not quite two years or still a few months away but you know, it's if, you know, if you're wrong for two years, maybe you'll be right eventually. But Wall Street's been completely wrong about the pivot. Um, and uh, we'll see what the Fed says, you know, in, in this current meeting. But um, uh, the the idea that the, Fed, the Fed's not going to cut anytime soon because the price of oil is going up. And that, is, that hasn't even filtered through. Uh, it's only in the past month, prices up 15%. That's at the wholesale level. But um, I mean, the, uh, the, 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 the near month futures contract, West, West Texas Intermediate on the NYMEX. But um, that hasn't even filtered through to the gas at the pump, transportation costs for food, clothing, and everything else we do, but it will with a lag. Uh, so, that, so the headline CPI is going to remain high for at least the next several months, even in a world that wants to um, um, deflate. So, uh, thank you, Hooties. You're, uh, you're, you're messing up the Fed. But again, it goes back to what I said earlier about how this is all connected. Now the question is, um, what is the United States going to do about the dead U.S. service men and women? Um, and will that involve an attack on Iran? I don't know. It, it, some, a lot of people are calling for that. We'll see. But it fits this escalatory dynamic where it's you know Hamas, Israel, Hooties, United States, Hezbollah, Iran, and um, recently Iran attacked Pakistan. I mean, did they not know that? Do they not know that Pakistan is a nuclear power? Israel's a nuclear power. Russia's on the sidelines. They're a nuclear power. I was just in Dubai recently. The uh, Dwight Eisenhower um, aircraft carrier battle group. I didn't see it, but it was it was in a tall building. I was looking for them, but they were they were right offshore. They were out there in the uh, Straits of Hormuz. I was pretty uh pretty close to that area well i was in that area uh in dubai um and there are plenty of nuclear uh armaments in that battle group those aircraft carriers don't travel alone they go with uh destroyers and cruisers and and submarines and there's a separate um uh nuclear armed submarine in the area as well in the Re most recently in the red sea i'm not sure exactly where it is right now but it's somewhere in the area um so between Israel, Pakistan, Russia, and the United States, you're surrounded by nuclear powers. Um, the UK is involved as well. And then Iran is probably just weeks away from being able to test their first nuclear weapon. And yet here we are, we, the United States and, and Great Britain, in an escalatory dynamic with Iran. Um, I'm not saying there shouldn't be some response to the killing of American service people. What I am saying is, where was your diplomacy where was your ability to think two moves ahead you know four months ago why did why are you in this situation why do you not 
but did you not foresee it and think about ways to uh, de-escalate rather than escalate? And the answer is they're not that smart and they're not that talented, meaning the United States. Fascinating discussion. So before we talk about the economy, uh, we have to talk about China. It's the second largest economy in the world, so it warrants a discussion. And even though one never really knows what's happening in China, uh, the narrative right now is that the real estate market is imploding. And just recently, China Evergrande, China's largest property developer, was forced into bankruptcy. But what are your thoughts on China and its impact on the global economy? Well, I mean, the impact is huge, but China is imploding. I mean, Evergrande, yeah, they, they technically filed for bankruptcy, but they, they were bankrupt two years ago. Everyone could see that coming. Every knew, everyone knew what the impact would be. The housing market has been crashing for, you know, the better part of two years. The Chinese people, everyday people, even if you have a good job and have some savings, they can't, they can't invest in that much. Uh, they, they, they can't invest in Western stocks. Uh, because of uh, capital controls, they can only take, I think, $50,000 a year out of the country. There are workarounds and there's money laundering and all that. But basically, it's very difficult for the Chinese to invest in anything except Chinese stocks and Chinese real estate. But they've both been crashing. Uh, Chinese real estate's been crashing for a while. It's going to get worse. Um, now the banks are going to be in distress because they lent all the money to all the properties that are going bankrupt. And then the Chinese stock market has been crashing. It's down uh, uh, over 10%, I think closer to 15% uh, in the past month. So so what do you do with your savings? Well, you put it in a, a bank. These wealth management products are failing. They're kind of uh, like junk bonds. They were, they were sold as equivalent to bank deposits, but they're not bank deposits. They're not guaranteed. They're not protected. The money was used to invest in a lot of these crazy real estate projects that we just talked about. Um, and so they're failing as well. Uh, world trade is contracting. That rarely happens. Even in a recession, world trade kind of keeps its head above water, but it is contracting. Something last seen on a, on a large scale during the Great Depression. Um, uh, the U.S. is putting a lot of technological controls on Chinese uh, exports uh, and not allowing China to import some of the um, any of the uh, high-tech semiconductor equipment uh, or chips. Um, uh, the Trump tariffs are still in place. You know, Biden made a big deal about undoing everything Trump did. Well, he certainly did that at the U.S. Tech, at the Texas border, uh, the uh, southern border of the United States, but he did not remove the Trump tariffs. They're still in place. And um, so, and you can see uh Chinese holdings of U.S. Treasury securities are declining. Uh, the Treasury has something called the U.S. Treasury has something called the Tick Report. It comes out um, southern monthly, quarterly, I believe it's monthly, uh, but it shows changes in foreign holdings of U.S. Treasury securities, among other things. And China's are declining, so a lot of people, a lot, a lot of analysts look at that, particularly Wall Street analysts, uh, and they go, aha, you know, China's dumping the dollar, they're getting out of dollars, they're selling their treasuries, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's not why they're doing it. They, they are selling treasuries, but they're selling treasuries not because they want to get out of them. They, there's a serious global dollar shortage. They're selling treasuries to raise dollars to finance their own banks, which have a lot of dollar-denominated loans that are going into default that where you know, sort of goes from the central bank to the commercial banks to the 
um, to Chinese corporations, state-owned enterprises, et cetera. They're all connected. And it's all controlled by the state. But um, the reason they're selling their treasuries, and they are, I mean, that's empirically correct, it's not because they want to dump them. It's quite the opposite. They wish they had more, but they need the dollars because there's a dollar shortage and a collateral shortage going on. So that's another sign of acute economic distress. So I look at China. Um, you know, the only way they they keep their economy going at all is with infrastructure spending. Um, but and I've been to China many times. I've been not just Beijing, Shanghai, but I've been in Wuhan, Xi'an, and Chongqing, and um, you know, Yangtze River, and a lot of other parts of the country. Um, they do these infrastructure projects that are amazing. I mean, I, I was in the Nanjing South train station. Um, it had taken, um, I think, three years to build, and it was 20,000 jobs for the whole three years. And it's real, you know, it's real steel and copper and marble and glass and electronics and, um, you know, escalators, and it's all real. But it's empty. I mean, there are 128 escalators, uh, and there's very few people there. And they subsidized the train tickets, so I bought the you know the bullet train because 305 kilometers per hour. Uh, I took the bullet train from uh, Shanghai to Nanjing, uh, and I got out the Nanjing train. And but the ticket was like 32 bucks. I mean, if you take uh, the Excel off of New York to Washington, I, don't, I haven't done it lately, but it's. I don't know. I think it's like a three hundred dollar ticket, maybe more, uh, and they lose money. So this bullet train is amazing. I mean, it's you know, much better than anything we have in the United States. Not even close. Um, and it, you know, it's quiet and it's fast, and the service is good and all that. But a thirty dollar train ticket doesn't cover the cost. That's obviously heavily subsidized. So my point being, they they build these infrastructure projects. They do import the raw materials or uh, they have the fabrication and manufacturing in China. It does create jobs and they do get a finished product. That's all true. But they're white elephants. I mean, they, they just, they will never repay the debt. They will never make money. Uh, and they're mostly empty. So how, how long can you do that before you've bankrupted the country? Well, maybe we'll find out, but obviously China is, uh, in very bad shape. Their growth is slowing enormously. Their statistics, I'm sure they overstate the growth. They're, they're not honest about the numbers, but you can take the numbers and do some kind of uh, mental adjustments or uh, taking what you know, including, uh, for example, under general accepted accounting principles, if you build an infrastructure project and it was worth nothing, the accountants will say, well, fine, you got to write it off. You, can, you write it down to zero. Keep it on your balance sheet at zero if it's not worth anything. Obviously, they don't do that in national accounting in China. But if you did, their GDP, they'd probably already be in a recession. So um, uh, that's deflation, deflationary, well, at least disinflationary or deflationary. Um, and, you, you know, you look around the world, you see Europe's um, in a recession. Germany, Germany's absolutely in a recession by conventional definitions. Europe has had practically no real growth for five years, you know, goes up and down, you know, a little bit of volatility, but um, France, uh, Netherlands, uh, now the farmers are taking the streets or well, they're driving their tractors to uh, The Hague and um, uh, Paris and uh, Berlin and they're shutting these countries down um, because none of it, none of it makes sense. So how does the U.S. 
you know, kind of prop up its headline GDP when China's slowing dramatically, Europe's in recession, uh, um, you know, Eastern Europe's in a war, you know, et cetera. And the answer is um, fiscal policy that you know, we were piling, you know, we're spending upwards of $3 trillion a year of deficit spending. Well, you'll, monetary policy doesn't work. I mean, monetary policy is kind of a joke. But fiscal policy can work. The question is, is it sustainable? If you have to spend $3 trillion uh, to, of deficit spending to get $2 trillion of GDP, and that those are about approximately the numbers, how long can you keep that up? Um, then the answer is if uh, you have to look at the debt, the debt to GDP ratio. If your debt is going up faster than your GDP, your ratio is getting worse which according to a lot of great work by Carmen Reinhardt and Ken Rogoff says that you're going to slow growth even more. And the only way out of that, there, there are kind of four ways out, uh, default, uh, restructuring, inflation or hyperinflation and growth. Well, you can forget growth where, you know, we're, we're, we don't have the policy set for that and the debt to GDP ratio is too high. There's no reason for the U.S. to default or restructure. Not because we print the money that, the, you know, Argentina has to do it. If Argentina prints pesos and borrows in dollars, they can't print dollars. So they do have to restructure or default on their dollar denominated debt. But the U.S. debt is dollar denominated. And we print dollars. So there's no reason to default or restructure. But you will get inflation. And I'm not saying this year. In fact, this year will probably be one of disinflation, maybe deflation. But on a longer term basis, it's the only way out. Jim, uh, before we leave China, I want to get your views on Taiwan. Uh, mainstream media loves talking about Taiwan and China taking it over. What are your thoughts? Do you think that'll ever happen? Well, ever is a long time. Um, I, uh, I I don't think it's imminent. There's a lot of talk about it. There's a lot of you know kind of threats back and forth. Taiwan just had elections. Uh, the party that won is a leans kind of as a pro-independence party, but at the same time, they um, their vote was a little smaller than the last time. So I don't think the the um, you know, they are the ruling party for now. They did win the elections, but the uh, support for that view was not was was, you know, close to evenly divided, not overwhelming. Um, but uh, and China threatens, but China's China's not in a good position to invade Taiwan. I'm not saying they couldn't do it, but uh, logistically, it's an enormous lift. Um, the U.S. would most likely intervene. Taiwan's getting a lot of new arms sales, preparing to defend itself. Um, I don't. I don't want to predict, you know, whether that will happen or not, or what the outcome might be. I think those are highly uncertain things. But I don't see anything imminent. I think it's mostly. Um, you know, a lot of hype at this point. Having said that, uh, there is one key factor that might keep China from attacking, which is um, what's called the, the bird's, bird nest theory, the bird's nest theory. And the, the nest theory says, goes to a Chinese proverb and says, if the nest is broken, how can the eggs be okay? You know, as they'll fall to the ground and crack. So what does that have to do with geopolitics of Taiwan? Well, the answer is that they have the largest, most sophisticated semiconductor industry in the world, particularly national uh, uh, 
Taiwan, sorry, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, TSMC. Um, they make the, eh, along with AMD and maybe Intel, they make the, the smallest chips uh, and fastest chips possible using nanotechnology. Um, and you would not want that technology to fall into the hands of China. So the plan is if China ever invaded, either we or the Taiwanese would destroy all that semiconductor manufacturing capability. They would get there, but they would just be in ruins. Um, and China knows it. So it's kind of like, well, I like the technology. Um, and, there, and there's separate technology input prohibitions in place. But do I really want to see it destroyed? And if I take Taiwan and all that's gone, what's left? Uh, Taiwan Semiconductor knows this. Obviously, they're investing, um, I believe, over $20 billion, maybe more, in building fabs, you know, semiconductor fabrication plants in Arizona. Uh, and so they're already looking ahead to the day when maybe Taiwan falls and they want to get as much of their capacity out of Taiwan into the United States. So there are things like that going on behind the scenes that I think very, that, that tell you a lot. Um, but I guess the short answer is I can't, I'm not rolling anything out in the long run, but in the short run, I don't think Taiwan, I don't think China's ready to invade Taiwan. So we discussed all of these geopolitical events that are happening in the world with Russia, Ukraine, the Middle East, and also China and potentially Taiwan. And when you look at them collectively, they're going to have an impact on the global economy. And I want to get your views on what this time period is like compared to other time periods. And I know you're a real student of the financial markets, but the time that we're living through right now, do you think it's more like the 1920s or the 1970s or the early 2000s? Well, uh, I guess no two periods are exactly alike, but there is a lot we can learn from financial history and, and, and political history. Um, it's it's kind of a strange combination of the I think the 1930s and the 1970s. Or at least that's where we're heading. Um, you know, the stock market's hitting new highs every day, and you know, in my view, it's it's a bubble. You know, a lot of people disagree, and if you said it was a bubble a year ago, uh, but but you invested, you made a lot of money last year, so I, I understand that, but. Um, it, it still looks like a bubble to me. Uh, the problem with bubbles is they can go on longer than you think. <laughs> no one, and you can, you can, people say you can't identify a bubble. I disagree. I think bubbles are easy to identify. What's hard is knowing when they're going to pop. And they can go on a lot longer than you think. So you don't want to necessarily run out and short the market, but I'm not, I don't feel like it's a, it's a great time to, uh, to dive in. Um, but we're, we're, we're definitely in a disinflationary trend with the possibility of deflation um, and a very severe recession. So that's in the cards. But you have these anomalies, uh, or not anomalies, they're just counter trends. And the price of oil is one of them, which we talked about. But that happened in the uh, late 1970s. And we had uh, in this, this, the whole Phillips curve idea that there's a measurable reciprocal relationship or inverse relationship between unemployment and inflation is is nonsense. It's just not true. The Fed believes it's true. And so you have to understand it if you want to do Fed forecasting, which I do. But the idea is that low unemployment means higher inflation and high unemployment means lower inflation. Not true. In the 1970s, 
unemployment was 11% and inflation was uh, 13% and interest rates were 20%. So tell me that high unemployment means low inflation. It was the opposite. We had high unemployment and high inflation and high interest rates. It was called stagflation and it lasted you know, pretty much for most of the period from 1977 to 1981. Um, and the value of the dollar was cut in half in five years. You don't have to go back to 1913 and the creation of the Fed and all that. I mean, I know what those numbers are, but here's a, here we, here's a period where the value of the dollar is cut in half in five years. So um, at the same time, um, money supply is decreasing. Uh, velocity is has been decreasing for 20 years and is still at a very low level. So the combination of lower money supply and lower velocity means your, your nominal GDP um, is ready to fall off a cliff. I talked to, to uh, Ben Bernanke about this and um, in terms of what was going on in the early 30s, my interest was uh, gold specifically because the, the, the narrative or the rumor or the conventional wisdom, I guess, is that, you know, gold was a, was a cause of the Great Depression. The gold standard prevented the Fed from doing what it needed to do. And the sooner you got off the gold standard, the faster you came out of the recession, on and on. But Bernanke made his academic reputation long before he became a central banker um, studying the Great Depression. And probably after Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz, he's maybe the number one scholar of the economics of the Great Depression. And I read his book, uh, and it and it showed that um, at the time, this is the early 1930s, the base money supplies, M0, um, could not be more than 250% of the amount of physical gold that the United States had you know, valued at the market. The market at the time was $20.67 an ounce. So you took the amount of gold times 20.67, which was the dollar price per gold on the gold standard. Whatever that number was, um, M0 could not be more than two and a half times that. But in fact, M0 was never more than 100%. It could have been 250%. It was never more than 100%, meaning that the Fed could have more than doubled the money supply, more than doubled the money supply under the gold standard without breaking the law. And that's how I read it. That's what the number said. And I said to I said to Bernard, I said, Mr. Chairman, I said, here's, here's how I read your work. I said, do I understand this correctly? And he said, yeah. Uh, I said, so gold was never a constraint. He goes, no. It was um, the fact that people didn't want to borrow and the banks didn't want to lend. It was a credit issue. Uh, and that's why the money is spicy. But gold was, he doesn't like the gold standard anyway, but for other reasons. But he was very candid about the fact that gold was not the problem in the Great Depression. So we see something like that today, uh, which is... Uh, um, M2, which is a, a different uh, money supply, broader, probably a better, M2 is probably a better reflection of the economy than M0. Um, but M2 is shrinking and velocity is declining. We're not on a gold standard, so you can't blame gold. <laughs> Whether it was true or not, you can't blame gold because we're simply not on a gold standard. So why are those, why are those, uh, uh, why are we not hitting on those two cylinders? And the answer is, the same reasons during the Great Depression. Nobody wants to, banks don't want to lend because they're worried about recession and people don't want to borrow because they're, they're worried about bubbles or declining commercial real estate values and they just want to hoard cash. 
So that's that's very much of a depression dynamic. But at the same time, we have this, um, you know, the spike in oil prices and uh, that could get worse. So it, it's a it's a mixed bag. But I think, it, you know, it I, I, I've, always, I've said I've said in my books um, that the US economy has been in a depression since 2007. And then people don't understand that they go, well, you know, the tech, the, the definition of a recession is two consecutive quarters of declining GDP There's a little more to it than that, but that's the rule of thumb. Um, so two consecutive quarters of declining GDP, two or more is a recession. A depression is worse. So a depression must be like 10 quarters of declining GDP or something like that, which of course has not happened, but that's not the definition. The definition of a depression, I take this from John Maynard uh, Keynes, um, is a sustained period of below trend growth with no tendency to return to trend. In other words, it's depressed growth. You can have growth in a depression. It's just below potential. If your potential is three and a quarter, three and a half percent, and your actual is 2%, that gap between the 3% and the 2%, which gets wider over time, is depressed growth. And by that measure, yes, we have been in a depression since 2007. And the lost wealth um, is now, I mean, order of magnitude is kind of five or six trillion dollars, but getting bigger all the time. So um, so I think we're in a depression using that definition. It's good enough for uh, Keynes. It's good enough for me. Um, and uh, with no way out of it. And possibly getting worse. So I would say um, the U.S. will likely experience a very severe recession, uh, may already be in one. Then the question is, do you get a, ba a banking panic on top of that? Because banking panics or financial panics in capital markets or banks are not the same as recessions. They're different things. You can have a recession without a banking panic, as we did in um, 1990. You can have a, a financial panic without a recession, as we did in 1998. Um, 2008, we had both. Uh, we had a panic and a, and a recession. But we may be in for something like that uh, again. Well, Jim, that was a fascinating discussion. And as we wrap up, you're a very prolific writer and an investor. would like to hear more about your thoughts on the economy or politics. Where can they go? Um, you can go to, uh, well, I have a, a number of books, uh, just go on amazon.com. Uh, uh, people like, uh, currency wars, my first book, uh, still very, very timely. I wrote about Ukraine, Russia, natural gas and warfare, uh, 12 years ago. And so it's still, that's still fresh. The new case for gold, uh, is another one. Um, but my main, um, writing is my, uh, my newsletter, strategic intelligence, uh, and our publisher is Paradigm Press. So if you just go to uh, paradigm.com and find the landing page, and you'll, if you're interested in, uh, in strategic intelligence, you'll find it there. And you're also very active on X or Twitter? Yeah, uh, at James G. Rickards. I use my middle initial, uh, R-I-C-K-A-R-D-S, at James G. Rickards on uh, X. Uh, yeah, I do, I do quite a bit there as well. Thank you. Well, listen, once again, thank you very much. Fascinating discussion. And the next time we get together, I want to talk about long-term capital management. We can do that. Well, I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Jim Rickards. One of the reasons we do these interviews is to provide you with insights on how to navigate the financial markets. 
And if you need assistance in doing so, consider having a discussion with a Wealthion endorsed financial advisor at Wealthion.com. There's no obligation to work with any of these advisors. It's a free service that Wealthion offers to all of its viewers. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel, Wealthion.com, and also hit that notification button to be kept up to date on future events. We have some amazing content coming up in the coming days and weeks that will help you navigate these financial markets. Once again, thank you for being with us today. Thank you.